My name is Steve Noblett, and I am with Christian Community Health Fellowship, and I see a lot of friendly faces here. Uh, there's a few of you guys that are going for the quantity discount. You were at the last session, and um, this is yeah. Well, last session was a repeat of something we did yesterday, but uh, this this is a different talk on community health and development from an urban clinic base, a topic that I was assigned. And because uh, I probably wouldn't have come up with with that name, but this is but it's really good and I think it's important and it gives me an opportunity and a platform to say things I want to say to people like you. So um, uh, let me see if I can. There we go. There we go. So um, how many how many here are familiar with CCHF? Enough that I don't need to go through the, the, the spiel on this, okay? So if you don't know much about CCHF, then I want to encourage you to come by our booth or ask some of the people that are sitting around you because there's a whole bunch of people here that know what CCHF is about. I will say this one thing, and that is that we're a national network of Christian health professionals that are committed to live out the gospel through health care among the poor. And, um, and we really believe that, that God has called us to use the skills and training that we have for his pleasure and for his purpose only. Only. That's it. We don't have the right to do what we want to with our lives. We gave those things up when we came to the cross. So the day that I got saved, I, uh, it was a long time ago now, over 30 years ago, and, and the, 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 I was, I, um, gosh, I don't want to go into the whole story, but I will say that that I, I was so absolutely desperate that I knew I had to have Jesus Christ in my life. I knew he had to do something for me I couldn't do for myself. And when, I, when it came time for me to um, sort of have that crisis moment, I know people come to Christ like a light comes on, you know, you flip a switch and all of a sudden you were off and now you're on. That was me. A lot of people come to Christ like water boils, you know, over time and that kind of thing. But so for me it was the light switch event and, and as this guy was getting ready to pray with me to receive Christ, and he was going to help me pray, and he said, okay, I'm going to pray this prayer, and if you pray this with me and mean it in your heart, then Jesus Christ will come and forgive your sins, will take up residence in your life, and you'll be changed forever. And I would have done anything. I would have told, you know, I would have, I don't know, I would have done anything at that point because I was so desperate. And um, he asked me, he said, are you ready to pray? And I think for him he was just nervous and was kind of buying a minute. Uh, before we prayed, because he probably never led anyone to Christ before and didn't know what to do with low-hanging fruit like me. And, um, and I closed my eyes. Before I said yes, I closed my eyes, and I had this picture in my mind, and I pictured myself standing in a, um, a rural little village in Africa with mud huts and thatched roofs and all black people, and so I was raised in a very racist home. We did not like black people, okay? And, and I, I didn't like black people at all. And so here I see a picture of myself, the only white face among a sea of black people in a, in a really bad, you know, place with bad food and bad climates and bad sleeping conditions. And, and instantly I, I knew what it meant. And I, I didn't think it meant that God was calling me to Africa to be a missionary. But I knew exactly what God was saying to me. He was saying to me, You've come to me today because you've screwed up your past and you want to give me your life to clean up the mess you've made of your past. But I'm telling you that if you're going to trust me with your past, you have to trust me with your future. You've got to be willing to go where I lead you. 
And so for me, it was this moment of, it, it always took about a second and a half, you know, and I looked up to the guy that was going to pray with me, and I said, okay, I'm ready. It's like, okay, it's an all-in deal. I don't know why I shared that. I know that somebody here probably is wrestling with some things about where, why would God lead me this way or that way? I'm telling you, home is where your mission is. Home is where God is leading you. It's not, it has very little to do with your background and your, and your culture and your roots, and it has a whole lot more to do with your destiny and your calling and serving Christ. Okay, the title of this is um, Community Health and Development from an Urban Clinic Base. And um, I want to start by talking a little bit about why community health and development matters. Like, the, the, the truth is, how many of y'all are doctors or you're in med school? Okay, so a lot, all right? And in med school, you are... You are trained over and over and over and over again to think in seven-minute time blocks, okay? You're trained to look at a patient, see what that patient presents, deal with that, and move on to the next patient. See what that patient presents and deal with that, all right? And then God completely disrespects your medical training by giving you the Holy Spirit, who is the creator of the earth and who has forever been hovering over the face of the earth to bring order to it, and whose passion and vision is as big as the nation's, right? And multi-generational and multicultural and all this kind of stuff. And you just want to, I'm trained to deal with the patient. I want to deal with this patient, then I'm going to deal with this patient. But these patients have a story, and they have a life. And the truth is that sick people come from sick communities, all right? And you've all heard the story about the guy who sees these Bodies floating down the river, and he runs and he pulls the river. You know, you know, you know that story. And then at some point, somebody stops and says, we need to go up river and find out who's throwing the bodies in. So community health and development is important because you're just going to be pouring water into a leaky sink and trying to catch it and pouring it back into a leaky sink if we don't address the bigger problems. That's not Christian. That's just common sense. In addition to that... Jesus taught us that we are ambassadors of his kingdom and that he's given us the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we've reduced that gospel to, if you pray this prayer, you'll go to heaven when you die. But then, once again, God doesn't respect the, that message that somebody gave to me that, you know, do you, you want to go to heaven when you die? Pray this prayer. God says... If you're going to pray this prayer, it's going to mean something about the way you live your life. It's going to mean something about what's going on. Uh, you know, it's more than just going to heaven when you die. In fact, my understanding is that that's really not our hope. The resurrection is our hope. And the resurrection is when that spiritual and physical reunion takes place where the material and spiritual creation are once again in harmony with one another because the effects of the cross of Jesus Christ have been fully accomplished. Okay? So the gospel of the kingdom demands that Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I said this in my last session, but I'm going to say it again. When he said that, when he taught us to pray that way, what he's saying to us is, God doesn't look at heaven and earth differently. He doesn't say, I've got things the way I want them here in heaven, and that's good enough. Well, you, what's, what, this is good enough for now on earth. All right? God is saying, I've got one standard. And if it's not going to fly in heaven, it's not going to fly here. If it's not good enough for heaven, it's not good enough for earth. 
and he's called us as his ambassador. So we proclaim this gospel. Jesus, when he um, initiated his ministry on his inaugural sermon, he quotes this passage of scripture in Luke chapter 4. He quotes the first part of this passage of scripture, but we don't really read the whole passage of scripture very often. But I can tell you that the Jews in the synagogue that day were very upset because his gospel and his declaration had major implications, not just about what they personally believe in their secret world of their heart, but about the way they lived their lives in the community that they had endorsed and built. And so I want to read this passage of scripture because I think there's power in reading the word of God out loud. But the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or the year of Jubilee, and the day of the vengeance of our God. In other words, Jubilee for some is judgment for others. To comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Okay, that's the first three verses. And we can spiritualize all that, right? But then he goes on and he says, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice, and I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make them an everlasting covenant with them. This is our calling. Isaiah 58, just a few chapters before this. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will be like, become like the noonday. And the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up age-old foundations, and you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. The first picture that I showed you of the boarded-up house is on a street where every house, there's, uh, there's three houses that are occupied on that entire street in the neighborhood I live in that we've moved into. And I, I drive down that street, and it can be very, very discouraging and disgusting to see the fallenness and the effect of sin and inequity in that community. And I have to go back and read these scriptures and remind myself that God has given me a destiny to have a name that's called the restorer of streets with dwellings. So community health is an important thing. It's not only important from a rational medical perspective, but it's important from a missional gospel of the kingdom-driven perspective. So what is community health? 
This one's a fun one. We could spend days talking about what community health is because there's very little agreement on it. But measures, as you start thinking about what community health is, it's sometimes helpful to look at how community health is measured. And when you look at how community health is measured, you tend to find it uh, spoken about in terms in academic settings and in, the, uh, and in um, federal settings in terms of mortality and causes of death. Okay? So, like, this is, a, this is actually a copy from Health and Human Services when you ask how do you measure the health of a community. And you see here determinants of health. But determinants of health are in the context of causes of death, right? And so they, community health, when you go through educational systems, are always going to talk about things in terms of mortality and morbidity. So I, let me quote uh, a, a textbook on community health where it says, definitions of community health have been strongly influenced over a long time by clinical diagnostic classifications. And so they consider several categories as they talk about community health. And one of them is conditions. And conditions are defined as the rate of incidence of disease, drug abuse, teen pregnancy, hypertension, etc. Okay, so disease, things that lead to death, okay. They also talk in terms of populations at risk. And they, they use demographic groups that are defined, again, largely in epidemiological terms. Populations affected by certain Conditions, where conditions, again, means negative health conditions. And then they talk about about community health in terms of intervention. And again, this almost always refers to the provision of treatment or preventative services for causes that lead to death. All right? That's the way community health is taught universally in our country. I'd like to propose um, that while this is useful, and I don't think we should ignore measures like this, It's all based on identifying and predicting risk of death. It's focused on mortality, things that lead to death. Um, And I think that we should look at it a little bit differently as kingdom people. Why don't we think about defining community health in terms of things that cause life, things that lead to life? Jesus came that we might have life, right? So what are things that lead to life? I think that, there's, that we need to look at a fresh approach to community health. And if, before we can talk about community health and development from an urban clinic base, we need to think about this fresh approach of defining community health in terms of life. So a friend of mine named Gary Gunderson and a guy named Larry Prey published a book a few years ago called, called The Leading Causes of Life. I recommend it. I don't think it's authoritative. But I think it, I like the discussion. I like the conversation that they have. And what they've done in, in this book uh, is they've, they've tried to identify five things that they believe are the leading causes of life. We all know what the leading causes of death are. What are the leading causes of life? And the first thing that they talk about is connection, connection versus solitude. If you put someone in solitary confinement, everything falls apart. They get sick. They, get, they lose their mind. Everything falls apart. Connection's important. They talk about coherence. Uh, Coherence, uh, someone who is a coherent person is a person who can make sense of the world around them. There seems to be some meaning in the world around them. They are not living in the context of chaos and 
and fate and randomness, okay? A coherent person means that things make sense. The third thing that they look at is agency. And agency means that a person is that there's purpose in our actions that are beyond ourselves. We are doing, we can be a part of something that affects other people and we have a responsibility for other people. So that's agency. Um, that we serve a purpose. We're not merely going through the motions and we're not being used without purpose or meaning. I was talking to a guy earlier today who said, man, I, I'm a PA in a secular health clinic in, in, uh, in my state. And I just got to tell you, man, I, I'm so fried. I've just burned out. I feel like I've been used up because he's lost this sense of purpose, this sense of, of meaning in, in, in what he's doing. It's been stripped away from him in the context that he's in. And it's, that's, that's not a healthy situation. The fourth thing that they talk about is blessing. Blessing is something you have to do for others. You cannot bless yourself. Okay? Uh, you can, but it doesn't work. Okay? Um, blessing means that you stop seeing yourself merely as an object of need. Now, my wife and I have worked in an under-resourced community with, uh, with teenagers who have now become adults and have teenagers for over 20 years. And I can tell you that the most that the biggest change that we've seen in their lives is when we've taken these kids that have been the objects of scores of big suburban churches sending youth groups in to do backyard Bible clubs and fix up their houses and, and sports programs and things like that for them and you know paying for them to go to camp where they can ride horses and canoe and all that kind of stuff. When we stopped doing that and stopped, and we started taking these kids on missions trips, where we took them to places like southern Louisiana after Katrina, where they tore down dangerous places and where they rebuilt parts of people's homes in Homa, Louisiana, inner city kids from Memphis, Tennessee, learning how to Zydeco. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was kind of fun to watch. Or when we took them to Pippa Passes, Kentucky, you know, and had them work with people who suffered from black lung and they rebuilt some things. And even though it was little fairly meaningless work for a lot of us. For these guys, it was the first time in their life that they had blessed others, that they had not been the object of need, that they had something they could give to. And that's an, that is a cause of life. And then, finally, hope. Okay, And I like what they say about this. This is, this is pretty good. They say that hope is not enough. It has to be informed hope. Because we all know the gospel... And the gospel is that we all have hope in Jesus Christ. But if we don't know that, then we don't get to live in the good of it. So informed hope. Now, you, you can buy into this or not. I, like I said, I, uh, I wouldn't take a bullet for this list, but I kind of like the way that they've started the conversation about identifying what leading causes of life may be. And to begin to define community health in terms of life in, uh, instead of in terms of mortality and morbidity. We can at least agree on hope, can't we? Can we all say that's a, that that is a that's an indicator of community health? If if th- if we can bring hope to this community, that's an indicator of health, right? So uh, I think that maybe it would be good to go a step further. All right, it's nice that Gary Gunderson and Larry Prey wrote this book. Gary Gunderson is a a physician who works at a hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and lives in a nice community there. Maybe it would be good if we could listen to the people in the community and ask them what they think health looks like. 
So um, how, would they, how would the people in vulnerable communities define community health? And, um, and I think that, you know, you would, you would hear words like security. You know, my community would be healthier if we had some way to be productive. If there was some peace around here, if there was a little less violence, if there was, if we had options, this is a big thing for poor people. Poor people define poverty not by the lack of things, but by the lack of options and the sense of powerlessness. So, you know, what would they say? And, and I, I think a good thing to do is if you're going to be, if you're going to minister to a population and you recognize that these sick people are produced by sick communities, you need to go into the community and start by asking questions, listening to them. What are the needs here? What, what defines um, health in your community? So at least do that. All right, development. So community health and development from an urban uh, clinic base. So development, I think, again, this is a word that we take for granted. It needs some, a little bit of definition. So Community development workers, especially Christian community development workers, tend to talk about development in three stages, that there's relief, rehab, and development. And relief is when, um, when you do something for someone they cannot do for themselves. All right? So when people are really down, really low, after Hurricane Katrina hit, they needed relief. They needed, they needed a whole lot of people to bring a whole lot of resources and do things for them that they could not do themselves. But after a while, they needed help getting back on their feet. That would be rehab. Rehab would be when you help the community get back on its feet. This is more partnership. It's doing something with someone. It's including them in the activity. And development is really health. That's when you become the servant and they become the leader. That's when they take responsibility for making changes in their lives, in their homes, and in their communities, and when you allow the community to become a place of sustainability and health. It's the community doing for itself. So I want to talk about a couple of examples of how this might look and make sense for us as healthcare professionals working in communities of need. We're where, by the way, we are not missionaries first, we are neighbors. Yeah? And where we are called, if as Christians, whatever else we're called to do, we're called to love these people. Right? I like what the, one of the guys in one of the workshops I went to yesterday said, you know, everybody wants to talk about, you know, I just want to go and love the people. They're hard to love. You know, they're not that lovable. And um, so I've got a few of them living at my house. And I'm telling you, right now, they're not very lovable. Okay, it's easier for me to love them from Louisville than it is from uh, my bedroom. All right, so here's an area where you guys see a lot of need in your in your um, in your clinic. You see patients in an urban clinic, and they come in and they look, uh, you know, they've got hypertension and type 2 diabetes and they're morbidly obese and they've got all of these problems and the first, what, do you, what do you tell them? All right? you, you start treating their, their problems and then you tell them you need a lifestyle change, right? And so the first thing you need to do is you've got to start eating better. You've got to change your diet. So the community where I work in is a food desert. The the leading grocery provider in the community where my wife and I work is a MAPCO station. And when kids talk about going to get breakfast, they go down to the MAPCO station and they buy a bag of Fire Cheetos and Fire Mountain Dew, or whatever they call that stuff. 
the red stuff. And that's breakfast. That's a breakfast of champions. That's when they're feeling good and they got some money in their pocket, okay? So food deserts, no car, no supermarket store within a mile. And so the bottom line is um, there are food deserts everywhere, aren't there? Just not for everybody. But there's, you know, again, we're not doing so well in Appalachia and we're not doing so well in the Bible Belt. So it's one thing to say to somebody, you've got to change your diet. It's another thing to ask the question, where do you shop? Where do you buy your groceries? So, uh, you know, we got McDonald's kids and all those kinds of things. We got, we got mothers in our community that when we go visit them, we find the babies, their little 18-month-old baby running around with a baby bottle full of Mountain Dew. And you say, your kid is going to weigh 600 pounds before they get in the third grade. You don't want your kid to look like me. You want your kid to look like somebody else. So, you know, and, and, they, and you say, Why, do you know that this is not good? And they say, Mountain Dew costs 99 cents a bottle. And a gallon of milk, first off, the MAPCO doesn't carry milk that's fresh very often. And a gallon of milk at MAPCO costs three ninety nine, and I can't afford three ninety nine for my kid. So I, my kid likes Mountain Dew. I feed him Mountain Dew. It's killing him. So how are we going to do that? All right, How are we going to address that? It's not enough to give them a diet. It's not enough to put them on a diet. We've got to help the community be able to have better options. So... There's a bunch of different ways that people are skinning this cat. Um, Christian clinics around the country that work in these communities, a lot of them have started uh, bringing in mobile farmer's markets into their communities. And so they'll work to to bring in a farmer's market. And uh, this is one from the Atlanta area. Um, And it's really simple, and it's really small, and they come and they park on the street, and the people come and buy. And it it takes a little bit of effort to to get people to think about this and to buy these kind of foods. And you have to ask the community again, what kind of vegetables do you like? And so, like, in my community, they want greens and they want tomatoes. But they don't want red tomatoes. They want green tomatoes because they can fry the only good vegetable they're going to eat. So they're going to take this good, healthy vegetable, they're going to fry it, and then invite me over for dinner. (laughs) Or they'll start community gardens. And I can't tell you how many Christian clinics I know that have little community gardens next door to the clinic or really close to the clinic, or they've found a piece of brown space in the community, and they've uh, asked permission, maybe gotten title to to the brown space and put in a community garden, and they go and work, and it's a really great thing. It's a really good thing to do. How many of you all have community gardens in, your, in the service areas where you work, or you've been a part of that, right? So these are good ideas, right? Here's a, a doctor in Jellicoe, Tennessee, who um, has a double lot next to his house, and he put in this community garden next to his lot. And I just happened to catch him when he had flowers and part of it, and, uh, uh, and I, I, I like flowers, so I had his picture made there. But he's got this huge... Uh, you know, community garden right there, and there, there's and they, uh, he and uh, 12 other families built this little shed, and these 12 families grow these crops, and they they grow enough for their families. So that's that's one thing you can do to help. Um, this is in Memphis, Tennessee. This is uh, called the Urban Farm in Memphis, Tennessee, and it's at the end of a whole, whole long string of Section 8 apartment buildings. Here, at the end of a cove, there was a 
a vacant brown space that was about four acres, and they were able to get title to and clear about three of those acres. This is not a community garden. This is an urban farm. And the difference is that it's a high-density working farm. They actually hire employees to work this farm. Not very many, but they, they hire people from the community to work on the farm. And they, they resell the produce on the farm um, to uh, the schools, the local schools, some of the local resi- uh, restaurants. They grow, uh, they have a really cool thing. They've got this big, huge greenhouse somebody donated to them. One of the um, uh, uh, nurseries that, that was moving out of the city, it was going to cost them more to move their greenhouse than it would be to just tear it down. And so they gave it to the urban farm people. And they've put in this section that's where they've got, uh, they have fish tanks with tilapia, where they raise tilapia. You all thought tilapia was a, an exotic fish, but it's actually a high-density fish. You can grow a lot of tilapia in a very in a one cubic foot of water. Um, and then over that, they have tomatoes that grow down. And over that, they have watercress that grow up, and they filter the fish water up through here. And so they, every square foot, they have three different crops that they're growing in this. And so they sell all this to to restaurants and schools around, and they use, you know, some of the employees get to take it home. And they also use it as a demonstration project and a teaching place to train people how to grow gardens and do gardening in their own backyard. Uh, And they, in addition to that, they started a farmer's market where they could resell the produce and the people that were growing crops in their community and local farmers around could come and bring their crops and resell at the Urban farms, farmers market. And if you ever come to Memphis, you can see that this is a this is a typical Saturday. And uh, the nice thing is that, that people from the suburbs think this is cool, and they're driving into the inner city to buy produce from the inner city. And this is redistribution. This is resources flowing into a community of need. Okay. So what does all this look like? Well, we talked about three levels of community development, right? So relief. Doing something for someone they can't do for themselves, this might look like a food pantry, all right? If you had a food pantry, there's a need for that in your cities, no question about that. But that's relief work. That doesn't empower anybody, but it does meet a need, all right? Rehab might be that community garden. That's something they're doing together. It's something they're doing with. Development is when you have a community-run urban farm where you train some people and turn it over to them, and they're able to make the decisions and run the thing and, um, and all that. And I don't know if you can see this or not, but this becomes a great bridge of relationship for people. I mean, it's really a cool thing when you see medical students and doctors and nurses working in the community garden with their patients. I mean, all of a sudden, they're partners in something, and it feels normal to everybody. And they have these bridge of relationships that become platforms for the gospel and for discipleship. Um, And can you see how the further down this list you go, the more opportunity there is for those relational discipleship connections to be made, right? So it's, it's a good strategy. It's a helpful strategy. So that's just one area in the area in the area of food. Okay, here's another thing: prevalence of obesity. Unless you live in Colorado, you live in a place where uh, more than one in five people are obese uh, adults. This is in 2007, and it has not gotten any better. Okay, we don't eat less because we're poorer. We just eat worse. 
Okay? So here's the problem. You tell your patient, um, you know, you've already addressed the diet thing, right? It's like you need, to, you need to eat greens. You don't have greens. Where do you buy your groceries? Here's a coupon to go to the farmer's market down the street. Uh, why don't you join me? We're going to do a community garden thing over here, that kind of thing. But in addition to that, what do they need to do? They need to exercise, right? So you tell them, you say, you need to get out and walk more. And the lady looks at you and she thinks, she's not going to say this because she's embarrassed, but she thinks, do you have any idea what it's like to walk down my street? You wouldn't let your mother walk down my street. You know, it's not safe to walk down my street. I don't have a place to exercise, okay? So there's a lot of things that people do. So, for example, I know this seems really silly, but this is a really, I think this is a great picture, and this is a, we have in a lot of the clinics, Christian clinics around the country, we have people that relocate into those communities. And one of the things that they'll do is they'll put a basketball goal in their front yard on the street. Okay, And what does that do? Well, it attracts kids in the area. It provides a safe place for them to get some exercise. Okay, That's a good thing to do. A lot of Christian health clinics are putting in health um, Exercise centers, health centers, real spas. So this is the best one in the country. It's in Memphis, Tennessee, and it's called the Church Health Center Wellness Center. Has anybody ever seen that or heard about it? Okay. I'm going to tell you about it, and then you're going to say, I'll never never do this. And everybody thinks this way except for the one guy that made it happen. All right? So you just have to stop thinking small and say, if this guy, what one man can do, another man can do. Have you all ever seen The Edge? I love that movie, The Edge, you know. What one man can do, today we're going to kill the bear. You know, what one man can do, another man can do. Scott Morris started seeing patients, and he realized right away, unless they change their lifestyle, I'm going to keep treating the same problems in these people over and over and over again. They need to exercise. They don't have a place to exercise. We've got to provide a place for them to exercise. And it took him several years of doing it, but he finally talked enough people into making a hospital uh, uh, give them an 80,000-square-foot facility, 80,000-square-foot facility that they then cast this huge vision for, you know, and if, and if whatever the guy's name is out in California can, bring, can build a crystal cathedral, you can build something that really is doing some good for people. All right, so, he, so they have this 80,000-square-foot facility. has the nicest ex- exercise center in the city of Memphis has a basketball gym in there. It has dance and movement studios. It has racquetball studios uh, or racquetball courts. Uh, it's got a, um, a heated therapeutic pool that's handicap accessible. They, you know, take people down on ramps and things. They have a teaching kitchen that looks like the Rachel Ray show, you know, with this big thing in the mirror over it and all this kind of stuff, except instead of sitting in chairs here, you're sitting at cooking stations, and you're cooking along with them. They have educational facilities in there, and they do. And if you want to become a patient at the church health center, you have to join the health, their wellness program, and you have to go through six weeks of training on wellness. And they give you a personal uh, trainer to teach you how to use all the equipment and to help you. And they take your blood pressure before and after and all this. And this lady right here, I love this lady. I know this lady personally. She's lost 270 pounds. 270 pounds in this place. And did the doctors do it? It wasn't through surgery. It was her doing it, using her own energies to, to come to this place. And she's the poster child for this place. So a lot of clinics now are doing this on a smaller level, but some of them are finding that there's funding to do it on a bigger level. So 
there's a clinic in, in uh, Atlanta that's just broken ground on a, uh, on a center that's going to rival this one. Lawndale Christian Community Health Center in Chicago has, is having a grand opening of a new facility that they got federal money to build. Uh, they're going to open it on December 1st. That's going to uh, be primarily for mother and child um, uh, clinical care and um, a, a big, huge health center for a community where it's not safe for people to walk down the street. So Lawndale, I was talking to the CEO at Lawndale, and he said, of all the things that we've ever done, we've never had more community impact than when we opened our health center. What we didn't realize is that no one opens a health center in a poor neighborhood, in an under-resourced community. And it was the first thing that was normal for these people. And they lined up and will save, they will skimp on their cable bill in order to pay membership to be a part of the health center there. And they love it. They love it. They're into it. So Lawndale has started a few years ago. They got this crazy idea. If you've ever been to Lawndale, you don't want to walk through Lawndale at night. Okay? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a rough neighborhood. But they decided to start a 5K in Lawndale's neighborhood. A few years ago, early on Saturday morning before all the bad guys wake up. Okay? And it started out, you know, fairly small, and they've done it every year now for several years. This is last year's 5K, and I want you to look at the people that are in that, that are running this 5K at Lawndale. These are not the people that you see running 5Ks in the suburbs, you know? This is the Walker crew. And it's so cool because the community has turned out. It's like a parade. The people that aren't in the 5K line the streets like a dadgum parade. You'd think it was the Boston, you know. Look at this guy. I love this guy. Okay, in addition to that, so that's cool. But now a running club has started in Lawndale made up of Lawndale people, of, of people from that community, okay? So once again, here's relief. Relief means, what, putting a basketball goal out in front of your house or starting a sports team or doing something for them, okay? Rehab, open an exercise center, begin to do something they can participate in. But development, a community-based running club in an under-resourced neighborhood where people have T-shirts that look alike, and they, and they are a testimony of health and taking responsibility for your streets and not just for your personal health, this is a sign of the kingdom of God coming, you know? So, you guys are all very smart people, you know? There's no, there's no lack of great ideas to bring hope and to bring life into an under-resourced community where God's called you to serve. Be creative, man. Use the brain God's given you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who's the most creative force in the universe. So these are the takeaways I'm really hoping that you walk out with today. What, what were we supposed to start at? We we're supposed to stop at 3:45, right? Right? Yeah. So I'm so I'm not late. <laughs> All right. Miracles. Okay. All right, I don't know if you got this or not, but this is, what, this, is, this is how I've been praying for this workshop, you know, that your takeaways would be that when you walk out of here, you say, you know, before I'm a healthcare worker, 
before I'm a healthcare professional, before I'm a doctor, before I recognize what's at the end of my name, I'm an ambassador of the kingdom of God. And that means that my calling is broader than medicine. It's broader than health care. You know, I understand that Christ's kingdom is not ethereal, spiritual, off in the future, in another dimension. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. All right, let me tell you what's not at hand. Dana Valangian back here is not at hand for me. All right, she's just out of reach. But my computer is at hand. I can touch it. And that's when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. He talked about the kingdom of God as something that was tangible, that was something you put your hands on, you can point to and say, that's the kingdom. So, And it's community. The kingdom is not individualism. It's community. And therefore, we have this call to be community people, community health people. Health and development should be defined in terms of life and not in terms of just avoiding death. Let's be the revolution for that amazing creative thought. That God intends for life and not just the avoidance of death. Just like peace is not the avoidance of of, uh, conflict. Clinical care is a component, a really important component of community health. But it is a component. We are not necessarily the top of the food chain. We're not the the apex of, of all things. We're a piece of the puzzle. And we need to understand that, and then, therefore we need to not operate in a silo. All right? We need to humble ourselves. You guys are really, really well-educated. You know, y'all are really well-educated. But there, you're going to find that there are brilliant, talented, resourceful people that don't have your education in communities that can really help you bring the kingdom into those communities. And we need to be collaborative for a bigger picture. But I do want you to get this. Doctors, whether they deserve to be or not, are esteemed above all. Okay? If you've got MD or DO at the end of your name, you know, or if they don't know what to call you, like all the doctors call my friend who's a nurse practitioner, Dr. Hainer, you know, and I told her, just stop correcting them. It just confuses them. You know, just let them, you write them a prescription, let them think it. You know, bottom line is, because you are trained, because you belong to this elite group, you have incredible influence and power, and with great power comes great responsibility, right? So uh, you can be and should be a force for development and empowerment in your community. So, you know, some schmuck like me goes to the city council and says, hey, look, we got problems with absentee landlords in our community not taking care of their property. And they look at me and they say, where do you live? And I say, well, I live in the community next door to that, but this is the community I've given myself to. And they're like, yeah, yeah, right. Well, when somebody that votes there comes and complains, I'll listen to them. And I go back, and I go back to them five or six times. But when Rick Donlin shows up at the, at the thing and he stands up and says, my name is Dr. Rick Donlin. We've put a health center in that community, and we have a problem with absentee landlords not, not taking care of their properties. Guess what happens? Absentee landlords start taking care of their properties or they start getting it taken away because he's got the secret handshake. He's got the initials at the end. So use it. Use it. It's a gift. Give it to Jesus. And use that to to do something great in your community. All right. Um, I like this quote. Leaders are pivotal people, doors through whom the purposes of God are allowed to pass. So... You're a leader by virtue of your title. 
and your degrees. Therefore, allow the purposes of God to pass through you. So there's a couple of books that I think are very helpful. Uh, when Helping Hurts, I think, has been quoted in almost every workshop here. And Brian Fickard, who's a friend of mine, is going to be speaking at the conference here next year. Don't wait to hear him buy the book and start going through it. Uh, Theirs is the Kingdom by Bob Lupton is another really good book. There's an organization that I would encourage you to be involved with. I'm always surprised that, that more health care professionals involved in community health care are not involved in Christian Community Development Association, or CCDA. Very, very similar in mission. They just don't have the health care piece, but they understand community development, and they will help you gain a perspective on how you can collaborate and make health care a piece and to help use your influence as a platform for other ministries um, to help bring things around. So if you want my uh, contact information, there it is. It's 345. You're free to go. Thank you.